Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Super good. Oh, you sound good. Yeah, thanks. I'm broadcasting live from Venice, California. You sound like you have good internet today. Oh, that's good. You sound clear. You sound like you're in a uh, cathedral. Oh, well, you know what it is, I think. Hmm. I've got a little natural reverb. Oh, it's yeah. it's got a nice it's got a nice crisp report to it. Oh, a crisp report. Mm-hmm. Kapow. <laughs> uh-huh. mm, I like this. I like yeah. it. You sound good. It's like the short happy life of Francis McCumber. That's that's true. Now that's that the abortion one? That's the no. like elephants. Mm. Yeah. Um uh, maybe I'll try on this episode. Maybe I'll uh, you know, try to make <laughs> it sound good. Uh, you talking about you're going to try on your end? Oh, I, well, the performance, I think, is we could take that as red. Right. You know. right. I'm always here. Like, I'm, I'm in the moment. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, people don't like when they can hear me typing. I think my typing has gotten louder. How can that be? Well, you know, I'm not using my clicky keyboard. I'm using my non-clicky keyboard, but yeah. uh, a little bit of, as they say, inside baseball. Yeah, sometimes, you know, I'm writing things down that you said uh, that with are funny. Pen? Oh, you mean? No, no. Clicking. I, I live the electronic lifestyle now. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know. Is, is that what you tell panhandlers? <laughs> <laughs> Do you accept a Bitcoin? <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm uh, I'm putting the show together while the show's happening. Everything that happens on the show is on the show. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. As I said uh, when I just typed you, I said uh, there might be some electronical uh, troubleshooting, but mm-hmm. you know that always makes for. For great radio. Great radio. So you're in Venice. Uh, what, what, it's, I'm cold here. My office is 63.9 degrees. That's insane. Well, sometimes if I run the dehumidifier, it heats it up a little bit. Yeah. It's the middle of winter. Why should it be cold? Yeah. I, uh, I live a very primitive modern life. Mm-hmm. So like my office, without saying too much, I have a heater, but it's kind of on the other side of the office and it doesn't really reach me. So it mostly really heats up the area right by the door where I'm not. Have you tried a space heater? I I haven't. I I feel like they might be a dangerous scam. Mm. Oh, interesting. But I don't know. That's one of those things where I feel like I need to really read up on it because I've reached that age in life where I worry about electricity. Well, let me let me just save you a little bit of that reading up. Okay, thank you. Um, there's a kind of space heater which is effectively like a radiator, um, like a like a uh, like an. Uh, a water radiator it that you looks like see a big, in an old uh, like a big accordion. Yeah, it looks like a big accordion, and inside is some sort of l- fluid. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. I'm guessing you know a uh, uh, some sort of whale oil. Mm. Um, but it's completely sealed within, and then the electrical element just heats up the the liquid, and it radiates just like a radiator would. It's a kind of sane second order heat. It's not mm-hmm. that kind of heat where you. It's basically like a big hair dryer. Mm-mm. No, that's not, scare me. It's not that crazy dry heat. There's no there's no element of it where if you knocked it over, it would catch paper on fire. <laughs> it's just a big, tall, you know, it's just a big sort of metal accordion that just sort of, you know, radiates this very comfortable, already mitigated heat. It's already been mitigated by the oh, fluid. I would and love by the... a mitigated heat. Yes, you know exactly. What it is? I, I wanna, I mean, there's a phrase I like a lot that I use occasionally. I want to take the edge off. I don't need the place to be hot. Right. I just need it to be less cold. I think there's a difference. So this is a very much, the edge is way off of this heat. Mm. I have one that I use in... Um, You've been to my home, and I you have. know that there is a you know that there's a there's a secondary wing, 
what yeah. I, what, you know, what I call the other wing. Mm -hmm. And that wing, when I first moved into the house, this is like the room under the stairs. Yeah, but this is the room next to. No, the room under the stairs doesn't qualify as a wing because mm. it's. Oh, that's really more part of the part of the thorax. Yeah, that's right. It's it's in the house, okay. whereas the wing is the is the room adjacent to that, which is like not part of the house. Mm. You open the door and you go in, and there's a whole other world in there. Hmm. That room. But that sometimes, if it's not in the thorax, it's not benefiting from the nascent heat of the uh, of the bird house. Ah, oh, pretty small, <laughs> right? The uh, when that when that wing was added to the house, the furnace, uh, the the HVAC hookup was also added. Afterthought, the plumbing was added. In a and, and uh, I, every time I I let something go down the sink, let's say I imagine. The w I imagine the way it must travel all the way Ugh. back to where it goes into the city drain. You know, uh, it's got I never I never used to think about these things, and now I think about it. I <laughs> think about it all. Was it somebody in your family? I feel like it was somebody in your family a few generations back who who worried about the electricity coming out of outlets. Wasn't that somebody? That was, I think that was you. But somebody, a friend of mine, was saying how one of their older relatives, some generations back, worried about the electricity escaping. From oh. an outlet and like getting introduced into the house. No, my people were very practical about scientific matters, and no one would have, no one had any superstition. You've in had my practical family. science in your family for a while now. I, 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 just as I say it, just mm -hmm. as I say it, I realize there is no superstition in, in my family at all in any direction. There's no, it seems like there's not a lot of, well, there might be magic, like Disney magic or the magic of Christmas, but it seems like you don't have a lot of magical thinking in your family. There's a lot of crackpot thinking. Okay. All right. That's, that's a nice distinction. And some of it does extend to the spiritual realm. Hmm. Hmm. Um, to, to the world of uh, causality? No, no. Literally to the world of, of spirits. Okay. But I think it's more... It's more uh, that it ha that it has to do with the cycle of life, and ha and whether or not the cycle of life is um, is monitored, or whether the cycle of life is, um, you know, whether it's uh, whether there's an uncaused cause, mm. whether whether it's a it's a clockwork. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of like kooky, let's say, kooky theory. Mm -hmm. Kook theory, mm -hmm. as we say. Mm -hmm. um, for those of us, uh, for those listeners who are currently at universities, mm -hmm. it's it's a new it's a new discipline. Kook, the kook theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but there's no you know no one in my family would ever hear a creak in the house, and I think I'm the only one. Maybe my sister too, but no one would hear a creak in the house and think it's a ghost. No one would, uh, you know, my mom would not hesitate to walk across a, a cemetery on a moon. Uh, you know, moonless, uh, windy night. Oh, absolutely! Bring it on! Bring it on! Says uh, says mom. Yeah, she's just she's got she's on this side of the cemetery. She's got to get to that side of the cemetery. It's the it's the quickest way, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's not a, there's not a ton of like that kind of woo woo. Mm -hmm. But if you say to my mom, "Do you believe in karma?" Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, now oh, who's really? running the who's running the karma machine? I don't know. Right. 
She doesn't care who's running the karma machine, but she believes people will get theirs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people get pretty wound up in, in the uh, thinking less about the karma and more about the machine and mm-hmm. its operator. That's, that's another nice distinction. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, and, and my mom is a big proponent of reincarnation. Yeah, you told me this. Yeah, but not interested in the operation of the mechanism. Oh, I love this. It just is a thing. It's just a feature, just as um, just as the wind, or just as the just as the mountains, or the earth revolving around the sun. It just is a. It's like, yeah. It, there's a there's a there's a mechanism. Do you know and, the, Do you know that phrase? Um, cargo cults. I love it. Uh, cargo cults. Yeah. I, there was a band called Cargo Cult. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I mean, the way I've heard this. And who knows, this could be a turns out or a double turns out. But the way I've heard this explained was that there was a point, I think, after World War II, where the United States uh, was delivering a lot of aid uh-huh. to, uh, as the story, I'm just going to say as the story goes. So right. I'm, I'm not going to edit this for uh, for our times. But basically, so, so that there were mar- Marshall Plan aid or uh, other kind of I like. Think what, it might have been what? even sooner, but the basic idea was that there were people uh, on on very remote islands. Uh, dotted around the Pacific who um, needed a lot of help after the war. And these were delivered by very large cargo planes. Right. And so uh, on a fairly periodic basis, a giant plane would land and these, these men in uniforms with headphones would appear and come and bring food and medicine and, and all different kinds of supplies. And the story goes that, in some of these places, uh, this became a kind of, I guess, religion, where they basically they started making uh, headphones out of coconuts to please the gods, where they started making out of like uh, like fronds would make the equivalent of like a bee. What's a what's a supply plane like a bee? At the time, yeah, we need like a big plane. They'll make a big plane out of fronds. Yeah, let's let's call it a uh, you know. A- what would they have been? It would have been a DC four. Okay, yeah, right. but the the the, the way, way we get to this though is that the story goes that the, the, these uh, visits came and and people started believing that it was their worship of the gods and the sort of uh, totems that they made that were pleasing the gods and right. kept them coming back. I have right. no way to prove that this is true. Then the story, of course, the turn is that for years after those planes stopped coming, people continued. To make the idols, they thought they were doing something wrong. Oh dear! Because now the plans. It seems like you could have solved like so many things. Uh, you could have solved that with better communications. But uh, that's the story, and so that's a phrase people use a lot to explain where, why there's something we end up doing, and we're not sure exactly how we started doing it that mm. way. Mm. And, and especially in like programming, they call it cargo culting, and it's just this idea that like, like, well, why do we, why do we always do it this one way? Well, that's the way we've always done it, and like mm-hmm. we haven't died of starvation yet, so it must be working. I'm very. Curious curious about the way this exact kind of analogy makes its way into computer people talk. Yeah. Because it seems like every few weeks it is revealed to me and maybe all these things have been all maybe people have been, you know, analogizing this as a cargo cult for 25 years. But it seems to me every every few months I'm a, a new sort of analogistic Syllogism mm. 
mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, arrives where uh, somehow in the in the software business, someone says, "Oh, well, you know, you've heard the phrase, um, <laughs> you've you've heard the phrase, the uh, the Arctic sandworm, haven't you?" And I'm like, "What's the Arctic sandworm?" Oh, yeah, oh, that, well, that's, Arctic... that's big right now. A lot of people are thinking about the Arctic sandworm. <laughs> the Arctic sandworm is this, you know, it's a little bit of a mixed metaphor, but well, yeah, I mean, but I, the, I, the idea of the Arctic sandworm is <laughs> if you if you go somewhere that's very very cold, it's going to look like one contiguous sheet of cold and right. ice, right? Which that that seems logical, but mm. oh, should, should I continue? Is this a double turns out? <laughs> And what I don't uh, what I don't understand is somewhere because a lot of the software engineers that I know are not um I don't know like how would they know about a cargo cult let's just put it that way but somewhere out there I mean how do I not know about a cargo cult that seems right in my wheelhouse That is right in your wheelhouse yeah But uh but somewhere out there there is someone who is trying to analogize a computer problem or a systems problem who also has in the, their experience knowledge of cargo cults, something fairly uh, arcane, and then also has the type of mind to relate the two together in order to create a new turn of phrase. Yeah, well, <clears throat> this goes. I think this in some ways goes back to a lot of uh, jargon, like where jargon comes from, mm-hmm. and you know, it's uh, this is kind of a simplistic way to look at this, but like when you're trying to talk about something like a business model involving software and services it can seem probably a little bit dry a little bit gray you want a way to physicalize or put into the real world what it is that you're talking about and so you end up borrowing like almost like like loan words and Mm -hmm. phrases and stories and sometimes they are as they say very sticky which is another Mm -hmm. piece of jargon so you get something like a cargo cult yeah absolutely another one might be a classic piece of jargon from the late 90s was uh boiling the ocean are you familiar with that one? Uh, you have used the phrase "boiling the ocean" before, and, uh, and by the see a lot of a lot of this jargon. By the time it gets to me, mm-hmm. it's, it's already it's already a joke. Yeah, you've already been using it for a long time, and the first time I hear it, you are already putting a ton of like ironic spin on it. Yeah, and so I'm like, "Boiling? Why is boiling the? I think I think that's hilarious, boiling the ocean." And you're like, "Ah, oh, yes, yeah, boiling." Because when the way you communicate it to me. It, uh, it already contains the voices of the people who have said it to you that you have contempt for. Yeah, and that's partly, yeah, you're right. And part of that, I think, comes out of having sat through, back in the day, um, having sat through so many meetings and lunches and just, like, conversations you overhear where there are these certain kinds of uh, things that sound very lively at first, these bits of jargon. They sound, because they really capture a certain idea. Yeah, you don't try to boil the ocean here, well, they, they, I mean, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. But I think, for example, there, there, there was for a time, like, for example, before people knew better during the dot-com days, people did a lot of, sometimes there were what you might call a pure digital play, where you might say, hey, look, we're going to make this new way of, like, finding information. But a lot of times, as things got a little more ambitious, you get, like, a pets.com. And so you get pets.com and you say, well, like, we don't really have anything yet, but what we're going to have is this thing where you can get like a 40 pound bag of dog food delivered to your house. And so, and you know, and so for example, that's not just for pets. Well, it could be, 
I mean, if you're hungry enough, anything's food, you know. But but like this 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 came up a lot, like at the place where I work, which is a realestate.com, and the, uh, so the boil the ocean idea is pretty much what it sounds like, which is that you know that this this crazy idea we have for a business will work as long as an improbably large number of people that we have no reason to believe would ever do this do this for way more money than we expected and for way longer than we expected, and we're going to put a tremendous amount of effort into doing something like, for example, like, let's say you're going to spend all this time getting, doing research on every person in the United States and sending them exactly the right amount of coupon for something where you're still losing money on every order. And, and you're describing the business model of indie rock too. Oh God, we should talk about that because <laughs> of, of the demos, the demos. So I, I don't know if I'm putting that particularly well, but like that, you get things like open the kimono, which is a way right. of saying, I'm going to speak openly about this as though I was uh, showing you my dick in a rope. Well, that's the thing. The first time you said open the kimono to me, it, yeah. all, it, it came in the middle of, I think, maybe at the time you were talking into your wallet. Yeah, that was me. That was me. Uh, and, that was when uh, I used to be Merlin Mann. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, when you were Merlin Mann. And I said, wow, uh, open the kimono. And you know what it made me think of was Hawkeye Pierce and BJ Honeycutt. Oh, they were wearing a bathrobe. Standing in a, in a, they were on leave in Seoul. Well, they were standing or, by their still. Uh, well, oh, you're talking yeah, about but, when they would wear a literally go to Tokyo or Seoul yeah, they, and they wear a literal kimono. Yeah, they'd go to Tokyo for uh, for some massages. So they'd on go their, for R and R. For R and R, and they'd be wearing a kimono. And you're and and so opening the kimono, obviously, like when I first heard it, it was shocking and titillating. Yeah. Um. Well, the first time somebody said, "Who moved my cheese?" Uh-huh, yeah. Uh. No, you you know what? You just did a really good Hawkeye impression right there. Ah, bah. You but, I'm partial uh, to the fugue. <laughs> but I'm just curious because it's um, like I understand that business school is 98% just coming up with this type of thing because there's because people are paying a lot of money to go to business school and it, and there's and nothing actually happens there except for the communication. I got, of this I got kind a of lot of level. questions, a lot of questions about business school. <laughs> this kind of like who moved my cheese level of uh, insight into the world. But. But I don't understand when the language is so colorful, when it's such a, you know, like cargo cult in and of itself is a fascinating reference to make once in your lifetime, Mm -hmm. you know, and it requires so much explanation as to what it is that it, uh, that its usefulness is also kind of predicated on an idea that this is a very small, inclusive culture. Just to say cargo cult is also not just uh, uh, like a, a metaphor, but it's also a code that says... Oh, absolutely. Under, absolutely. You know, anybody that understands this has already read the Wikipedia page, and the only way they did that is that someone initiated them into the into the understanding of this uh, representative language. Yeah, it becomes, it goes from being, so you have, like on a technical basis, you might have jargon, where there's certain kinds of things that people use as like a heuristic to get past a certain concept we all basically understand, but then it goes from jargon to being really more like a patois. Mm-hmm. Where like you mm-hmm. can you can say these phrases and it shows it's just like you're whatever your Brooks Brothers suit. It shows that you're part of the in group when you're able to make the right reference at the right time. And you know, go right. betide you if you make a reference that's too old because that shows that you're not up on the latest. Yeah, nobody is boiling the ocean these days, Merlin. But 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 my my curiosity is where is the that being generated? Like who are I mean, I because I know a lot of people in in business. Obviously, I don't know as many people in uh, in internet business as you, but they don't 
in general seem like language generators, you know, but somewhere in the machine, there are people who are frustrated poets or. Oh, yeah, for sure. Somehow using this language, using language this way and incorporating what they read into creating new language to describe processes. It's uh, I just love it, and I wish that there was some kind of because it's you know it's like this is the etymology, right? Yeah. Some some day some etymologist is going to have to is going to have to wade through all this uh, beach grass to find <laughs> like who where did that come from? Right, you know, right? And it and and something like cargo cult, it feels like it has an originator. It's not something that just got into the parlance by you know the like. The same way that um, that so many of our phrases kind of come from Shakespeare, but but are get get mangled on the way or from the Bible. But like this is uh, this feels like one person used this the first time, right? And they were so clever, but we don't have a record of. It's like our, he presented TED Talk Zero. It's like yeah. it's where for the, the 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 font from from which so much of this uh, these mental models come from. Right, not just the font, but also the font. Mm, and the font. Am well, I right? The, uh, yeah, my, yeah. Absolutely right. But, uh, you know, I think, I think mental models can be very powerful. And, you know, there's that guy, the guy who wrote that book, Don't Think of an Elephant. Before that, he'd written, uh, what's his name, Lakoff, had written a book called uh, Metaphors We Live By. Mm. And his whole deal uh, is, uh, not whole deal, but a lot of what he talks about has to do with that metaphors are more than just a way of understanding a situation that's foreign to us or you know, that we haven't experienced before, the metaphors actually become a way that get sort of ingrained in our thinking. So I don't know if mental model is exactly the right word, but, you know, life is a journey, uh, you know, uh, there's basically all of these things. And he used Don't move my cheese. Don't move my cheese. That's that's definitely one of them. (laughs) But just the idea that, um, you know, I think what you're talking about here is that there's an idea that grabs you and you make some kind of a connection in your own head and go, oh, I get that joke or I understand that reference. And then it can be difficult to shake. You yeah. know, and, and there are certain kinds of like pithy, you know, kind of sh- almost Shakespearean, like rhythmic p- little bits of language that people say and repeat and repeat over and over again. And it sometimes might it might take a few months for it to catch on, but then it might take a decade for people to really kind of unpack. Well, OK, well, what is that really? What does that really mean? And yeah. is that is that still like that? It does that heuristic still work as a way to explain the way things are happening right now? Yeah. I mean, I imagine like a phrase like rat race. There was a time when only people i mean you know that that probably came uh, you know rat race is one of those things where it might have come from uh, uh, elizabethan england when people actually were racing rats but it also could be a thing that entered the lexicon in the 50s when scientists were doing a lot of experiments on on rats in mazes and I bet it's I bet it's just the way that I mean I'm, who knows now there's certainly going to be a double or triple or quadruple turns out here but I right. imagine it's what it looks like when you watch a bunch of people uh, moving through Manhattan it looks like well, a bunch of rats racing well sure but if but in order to in order to make the connection I wonder if at the at in its earliest stages whether Rat race was also a little bit of insider language in that you had to be educated enough to understand that scientists were, um, like, not not just observing humans in the, like, a, like what am I trying? I'm trying to get, like, a, like, because we use, 
And well, we haven't I mean, done this in a long time, it, but like habit trails. Do you remember when? Oh, when I love, love a habit trail. When everybody had a habit trail, and and there and there, it was a very popular. That was that was peak hamster. Yeah, a very popular uh, uh, analogy in its time to think of yourself as a hamster on a wheel mm-hmm. or a hamster within a habit trail, which you know, which meant that you were exploring your whole environment. You had this whole environment you lived in, but you weren't cognizant of the fact that this was just a. Uh, but the wheel wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, and this that this ant, it was an ant farm, and that's another one that. Mm-hmm. But you don't use ant farm or habit trail references anymore because nobody has ant farms or habit trails like those fads have passed. Yeah, but I wonder. I mean, there are a lot of things I think that we use that that the analogy was at one point in time, sort of predicated on on uh, being a member of a much smaller group that understood that scientists were working on rats or that understood what a, what a, uh, what some of these, you know, like hula hoops or whatever. Or like, or, I mean, like maybe a common one would be all the various spins on, um, boy, now I'm going to have to remember words. Yeah, uh, all the various the spins on BF, BF Skinner and Pavlov. So mm. all the variations on like a pigeon pecking for a pellet, which is another kind of, in some ways, related to the cargo cult idea, or yeah. the idea of the Pavlovian response. Right, the like, Pav- Pavlov's dog. You got, yeah, drooling like a, like a yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've, we've uh, and, and I remember first being introduced to that concept and having to have Pavlov explained to me. And That's now a pretty just... gruesome experiment when you really read about it. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They well, weren't just sitting I'm, there with a shot glass trying to capture spittle. I think they actually cut a hole into the dog and then put like a spittle channel in there so they could capture it scientifically. Well, you got to capture it scientifically. <clears throat> yeah, that's why you could say it's right on a label, science. Listen, if you, can't, if you can't find a reason to cut a hole into a dog, I don't think you're doing science. Oh, that's a really good point. What about, you know what what about I mean? a chimp or a monkey? What if you're, should, be, should you cut nut monkeys? Uh, cutting up monkeys, right and left. That, that sounds like an indie rock term. Right, cutting up monkeys. <laughs> cutting up monkeys. If I don't hear that, used we had, we had to a five hundred dollar guarantee in craft services, but by the end of the night, I was cutting up monkeys. Well, I think I think it's going to be much more a thing where a guy in a boardroom who's not wearing a tie, because uh, because real rich people don't have to wear ties. All right. Well, I'm going to start capturing, and I will be typing here. I'm going to start He's capturing to... a few of these that we might be able to introduce as a service to our listeners. These are some potentially context-free jargon phrases. I really this is a little bit of a Letterman bit here, but if, <laughs> if they come up, I would like to have some some new phrases that we could encourage people for the year 2017 to start introducing in their life, and you can decide what it means. Yeah, I think that cutting cutting a hole in a dog mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is real good. Okay. Cutting up monkeys. Okay. Uh, also good, and I think those represent very different business processes. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to cut a hole. I like, in the dog. I like that these are really grounded in, in physical. Things. How about maybe like uh, put your hat in the freezer? Put your well. Oh, so here's the thing. This mm-hmm. is actually a good analogy. Oh, good. I, I was reading the other day that if you have moths in your cashmere and moths in your cashmere, mm. that's another one. Got but it. That, got it. Um, if you have moths in your cashmere, don't be alarmed. Now it's just a Spring, spring queen, queen for the, the May queen, queen. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but w- one thing you could do. <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> one thing you can do is put your cashmere in the freezer. Oh, I know, I know, it's serious. Right? Okay, so, that's so, good. So, so 
I don't want to use cashmere in all of these things, right? But my God, is it possible, John, that everything we have to learn can be found in the lyrics of, of Led Zeppelin? I believe it. I believe I have already lived this philosophy. Proud Ariane, one word, my will to sustain. It's all. It's all. Can I? Well, where's the confounded bridge? It's all in Led Zeppelin. Uh, God, they were so, so far ahead of us. Yeah, so so put your wool in the freezer. Mm, Let's call oh, it. Oh, wool in the freezer. All right. Put your wool in the freezer, right? That's a that's like not just a prophylactic. Um but it's I like also these, though, like an emergency these, response. These these seem timeless. Some of these uh feel like they, they could be from a Silicon Valley boardroom or they might be from Will Rogers. Right. Wow. Will, Will Rogers would say, ah, put your wool in the freezer. Right. Okay. Well, how or about don't let's let me see. Catch um, you put your wool in the freezer. How you about know, some, uh, sometimes even a dirt farmer needs to fill the tractor? Sometimes. Is that too long? Even a dirt farmer needs to. Yeah, we got to shorten that down. Okay. All right. Um, hmm. What could it be? Uh, let's see. Uh, you're, you're like don't, a dirt farmer. How about farmer. this? Don't break your glasses because you don't like the movie. Don't break your glasses because you don't like the movie. Yeah. I think we get, let's jazz it up. Don't sit on your glasses because you don't like the movie. Uh, that's what about that? Don't sell your glasses? That may, you know, that, oh, don't sell your glasses because you don't like the movie. See, mm-hmm. that, but those are, that's stretching a little bit. Nobody's right. going to sell their and glasses. We need something, it's got to be a lot pithier. That's no boil the ocean. Yeah, no, boil the ocean is, that, that should be our we can We can make them a little more mysterious. We could just say things like, uh, yeah, you got to jiggle the handle. Okay. Jiggle the handle. There you go. Put that mm-hmm. down. All right. I mean, um, this is all. The thing is, this is just blue sky solutioneering. At this point, we're just we're just putting ideas on the board. Yeah. Right. Uh, don't take your windshield wipers off despite the rain. Okay. And don't spit into the wind. Right. Don't, don't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger. Right. And don't mess around with. Don't Jim. mess around with Jim. That's number three. You know what? Don't mess around with Jim. Is a is a pretty good. I, I can't remember. I wasn't trafficking in adult life. In the seventies, amongst adults who would say things like "Don't mess around with Jim," mm-hmm. you know, like the adults that were standing around me, whose uh, language I was trying to pick up on, uh, they weren't wearing blue jeans. You know what I mean? Hmm. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, I barely knew anyone that any adult person who had ever worn blue jeans. Did they call them dungarees? Uh, yeah, I believe. You know, my dad certainly didn't wasn't going to wear a pair of dungarees. Until I've known a lot of John. I've known. I've known a lot of adults like this. I've known. I'm thinking of the father of a lady friend of mine, mm-hmm. whose father wore a suit for everything. Mm-hmm. And like when it was time for him to dress up for Halloween, he wore a suit, but he added a towel and said that he was a, a chic. <laughs> because he, he couldn't suffer the idea of appearing anywhere not in at that time a three piece suit. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, I think I've told you the story. Almost certainly, I have the, the that at Christmas time in 1984 or something. Um, I had <clears throat> I'd been introduced to Levi's. My my mom was telling this story the other day, where she said, you know, in 1983 or something, I took Susan, my sister. Mm-hmm. This is my mom talking. She took her to the thrift store because my sister was a punk rocker. And my mom said, you know, go crazy. You can buy as much, much stuff at, in this thrift store as you want. And uh, so Susan bought 15 bags of, of like, uh, bebop dresses. Or uh, your, your dollar, The dollar went a long way at a thrift store at, at that time. 
Oh my God! And and there was so much genius stuff because there was people... there was I mean unless you were getting a suit you might spend three to six dollars on a suit but like but really two dollars was the most you would spend on a shirt for example three dollar pair of pants and hipsters weren't really there yet in no. all mass and so thrift stores were full of fifties Levi's all this you know and a lot of people with good taste stuff. let's be honest had recently died you're you're getting quality stuff from people with good taste. Well, and, and also, uh, up up to a certain point, there was no what we would call now bad stuff. You know, like right. all that stuff was handmade somewhere in New York City by uh, in the, in like a uh, in the garment district. Even the cheap clothes were. Well, I, I used to. I think I've told you this, but I used to have like a focus where I was developing like collections, mm-hmm. and there was. Gosh, I'm not going to remember it now, but for years, J C Penney had a line of. Like basically, not not uh, not Phil. Someone I'm thinking of a little bit like Pendleton. They had like these really nice like plaid work shirts that they made for years. The name's escaping me, but for years and years, if you, I would just look through the labels and look for those and find those because they were always really great. I call them Paul Westerberg shirts because you look at Paul Westerberg when you wear one of these. But that was a terrific shirt, and this is in the days before the grunge. You got to understand this is before the grunge yeah, yeah. cleaned everything out. Oh yeah, before the grunge. So oh, she but, goes and she buys she buys bags of dresses. Well, and and so she was mocking me in this conversation. Then this conversation happened a week ago by the way and she said yeah and at that point in time john was all you know he was in his preppy phase and so he had to go to nordstrom and for the cost of three garbage bags full of 60s clothes that susan bought john only got one shirt ha 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 and i said let me set the record straight here first of all i never owned a shirt with a logo on it because my mom, even at the time, would have mocked me mercilessly. You have for to make having... your own uh, smiling alligator shirt. Yeah, I made smiling alligators instead. And <laughs> second of all, the only time my mom ever took me to Nordstrom was during their half yearly men's sale that happened, like basically right about now, right after Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I was allowed to shop in certain sections, and uh, I was constantly going to school. Everybody else had Nikes with a red stripe, and I was wearing Stadia's. Or some shoe that had a... Do you remember they, they had a whale on them? Oh, I that do, was, I do. Was, and I, I had... I, I don't know if it was Montgomery Wards or Pennies, but one... I mean, the thing is, this is the time when you had to have... You were a Nike person, or you were an Adidas person, or you were a weirdo. And most of the cool kids were <laughs> Nike people. Yeah, but you sure as shit didn't have a whale or a fox on your I shirt. I had a pair from Monkey Wards that had four stripes instead of three on it. Oh, that's the worst! Oh, or like oh, the upside-down almost swoosh. Around 1981, one of the brands... The department store brand started putting it was like a swoosh but it was like it was it was like upside down and not quite a swoosh and like a scythe i mean you're better off you're better off you know uh you know wearing napkins on your feet you look like such a chode I, and and so this is this is the the, the like the fashion the 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 uh, like wasteful fashion maven that i supposedly was when i was in ninth grade just desperately trying not to get thrown into a pot of boiling oil and i was already not i was nowhere even in the running i just didn't want to wear things like you're saying that were that were visibly knockoffs of a thing and now and and so because it looks like here's the thing it looks like you think you're pulling it off and there's nothing that makes you look weaker than not pulling off something and acting like you're pulling it off yeah either that you're pulling it off or that you are so blind to what constitutes good that you think there's no difference, which is even a worse uh, like thing to put on you. 
right? That you're just like, oh, these are these have a red stripe, mm-hmm. and you don't even have the like the the visual information processing power to know that the stripe is upside down. And there's a time in your life though where you can't imagine, like you know, if somebody did buy you a pair of fifteen dollars shoes that had the wrong stripes on it, you'd be like, what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. You'd be, but, and that, that's how I feel today. Like uh, I still don't know who Nelly is. Oh, yeah, no, me either. You know that feeling though, like there was—I don't know where it happened, but I passed through uh, some some kind of uh, long hallway at some point, and I just don't know what the fuck's going on anymore. Well, I—it I, was also at a time, of course, when you couldn't—if somebody bought you a fifteen-dollar pair of shoes, you couldn't not wear them. Oh, come on! Right? It's no. not like you're—it's not like you're going to put them in the closet and never touch them because they're humiliating. When you, no, when you, you go and get it, when you go and get a job, you can go buy your forty-dollar Nikes. Exactly. Anyway, so <laughs> immediately, like Nikes, Nikes, immediately six months after this, uh, you know, this titular moment when my mom is describing me as like the the biggest, most wasteful, like land pig she'd ever seen. <laughs> um, I was, I had figured out. Oh, you can buy preppy clothes at the thrift stores too. And then, you know, but apparently I still, in, in, my, in my mom's version of the world, I'm still like this guy throwing money at IZOD shirts. I don't even know this, this thing. She doesn't have the visual acuity. Maybe she thought my smiling alligator really was a... Anyway. That all, was worse than a snob on a budget. <laughs> <laughs> I don't but think so. <laughs> all this is to describe that moment when I had gotten hip to Levi's finally. Yeah. And I bought talking, my, What are we talking here? 80s, 90s? Yeah. Or no, 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 no. Or, or, or mid-80s. I resisted them for a while and continued to This is when they wear, were still... This is when they were still... I mean, Levi's are costly now. Yeah. But I mean, you could go... You could get you some $20 Levi's back then. Well, but also there were, a, there were so many rules about wearing Levi's because they were the only jeans other than Wranglers, which nobody was going to wear. Or they survived jeans. the great jean wars. Mm. I mean, there, there were always going to be Wrangler and Lee people, and yeah. but but Levi's really emerged as the go-to. They started as the go-to denim brand and ended as the go-to denim brand. Right. And, and partly, I think this. No, I don't want to get into too much of a turns out here. I'm not going to go off economics on this. Go ahead. But I think it. Well, I think in the same way that there was backlash against disco because of homophobia and racism, I think in some ways there was giant backlash against designer jeans because a they seem snooty. Right and and B they, they seem well and they seem kind of disco. The idea of spending forty dollars or eighty dollars on a $80. pair of like Gloria Vanderbilt jeans, right, or Jordache, Jordache. or uh, Guess jeans, Calvin but, Klein. And, and the thing is, a lot of people are listening. They're not understanding because now, of course, there are a thousand kinds of very expensive jeans. Now, now but, I get Levi's and they're fifty dollars, and it, that's that's like some of the less expensive brand jeans. Oh, dude, you can spend two hundred fifty dollars on a pair of jeans. Just I could I could uh, I could throw a baseball from where I'm sitting and hit a pair of $250 jeans for sale. You got a good arm. Well, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm also sitting <clears throat> pretty darn close to an expensive jeans place. I was sent That's some, our, our friend Matt Alexander percent. sent me some nudie jeans. Yeah, nudies. And then I found out what they cost, and I was uh, I was a little bit beside myself. Uh, we've talked about this before, the the arrival on the scene of the seven for all mankind jeans that suddenly made everybody's butt look good. Mm. And, uh, and prior to that, I really do think in these terms that prior to that moment, the seven to all mankind... Uh, like technology, but technology, but shaping technology of yes. these jeans. I still don't understand how it works. But there was a there was a time before this when um, <clears throat> when you <clears throat> when you looked across a cityscape, looking at butts, as I so often did, yeah. you saw a whole range of butts, a panoply of butts, and some were good, and some were bad, and mm-hmm. some looked square, and some looked. Uh, 
you know, like pears, and yeah, there were there were it was a, a so, whole so some universe. butts were ambivalent, uh, mm-hmm. some some butts were ambitious. It was a great was American a, melting pot. It was a color wheel of butts, mm-hmm. and then this gene technology came out, and I, I still I still am amazed by it. I do not know what exactly. <clears throat> happened where it was some kind of placement of the pockets and some sort of a- addition of a couple of percentage points of spandex into the into the Levi's or so I don't know what happened but all of a sudden all butts looked the same hmm. and it was <clears throat> and it was a good same like they had achieved they had achieved this uh not just making butts look good but then uh, made it accessible to everyone is it like a butt singularity well, a little bit like you look around and you're like, yeah, that's that, that you know. And all or maybe these... put differently, nobody's butt looks heinous. Nobody's butt looks heinous, mm-hmm. and everyone, uh, everyone wants their butt to look good. Mm-hmm. Um, I even remember... even if they don't say it, they're thinking it. I think everybody, yeah, and a lot of people aren't aren't brave enough to say it. I remember walking with a girl, uh, a girl I was dating at the time. This is many many years ago, early early nineties, and I was in a group of friends, like. Seven guys that were all my friends. One of them was somebody, somebody's little brother, but you know it was like a bunch of guys that I considered one uh, one of my groups of friends. And we're walking along. She was a very fashionable girl, and she and I are bringing up the rear, if you will. Mm-hmm. And she says, just kind of you know, casually out of the side of her mouth, she's like, eight guys and not a single good ass." Wow. And I looked at I looked ahead, and all of a sudden, all these friends of mine, like they just they they went from color to black and white. I was like, "Oh my God, she's right. There's not a single good butt in the group," and I wouldn't have noticed um, because each butt was different. And I was appreciating like the whole you know this guy likes this guy has already adopted that weird super big big pants thing that was yeah, happening. Maybe you were seeing a little bit more forest than tree. Yeah, this guy over here's got a chew can ring in his pants. Like they haven't really figured it all out. And she just said, like, uh, eight guys are not a good butt in the bunch. And then of course the second thought I had was like, oh, mm-hmm. what about my butt? That's right. Am I can I be so lucky as to be the best butt in this group? That seems a, I mean, that seems a little bit risky to think. It's amazing how you can go from not knowing about something to have it being the most important thing in your life in like half a second. Well, and she's going out with me, right? So yeah. she obviously it matters enough that she wouldn't have chosen me at my butt. So from that moment, from 1991 to the present, I have always carried around with me a sense confirmed by many like fishing expeditions. Fishing expeditions by which I mean, do these pants look good on me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they look good. I mean, do they look like great on me? Oh, yeah, they look fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, here, check it from this angle. Or is this? Good pair of pants. Yeah, yeah, they're fine. And it's like I'm, 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 I'm including that data in my in my general survey. But you're calculating a notion that you might have a, a good butt. Oh, I'm calculating a notion that I have an a fine butt, an okay one. Oh, one like that, acceptable. Yeah, one that passes muster mm. enough that no one's going to walk behind me and say like, yeah. Or 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 worse, nobody's going to walk behind me and just not notice my but you're, butt you're at not, all. You're not a grotesquerie, but you're no. not going to win any contests. Well, because en- I've 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 floated this balloon enough times and have really never once gotten a single like, oh yeah, those pants look good. Mm-hmm. Like, and I not not maybe in that tenor, maybe an octave up, but but still like uh, enough. I've I, I've I've taken enough surveys to know that. If people are physically coveting me, 
It yeah. isn't for that reason. Okay. Um, hmm. But I have never adopted modern jean technology either. I continue to wear uh, dumpy Levi's, which do not actually fit yep. my frame, right? So maybe if I went... Because Levi's aren't pants. Levi's are a process. We've talked well, about this. And at the time, in the early 80s, right, people were ironing their Levi's mm-hmm. and bleaching them to perfection. Oh, so back to my original point. I bought my dad a pair of Levi's. I've, I th- I'm sure I've told you this. I bought my dad a pair of Levi's for Christmas. Like, here you go, dad. Like, get with the times a little bit. Yeah, join the Pepsi generation. Yeah, I'm 14 years old or something, as though my dad's never seen a pair of jeans. And I'm like, hey, old man. <laughs> what are these for? You know, you don't have one of these. Yeah. What are you going to do about this? You're like a lot of kids are listening to heavy metal. Uh, I'm I'm uh, going to turn you on to a new thing too, Levi's pants. And my dad opens the opens the package, and it was like the one time one time many many <clears throat> moons ago where I bought a girlfriend of mine a gold chain. I was in New York City and I bought this very delicate little gold chain uh, at one of those stores on. On 42nd Street, where it's just a guy sitting in there with a loop on his glasses. Like yeah, sure, a, sure. And uh, he's, got, he's smoking a cigar. And you're like, I want to buy a gold chain. And he's like, all right. And I bought this gold chain, and I gave it to her on her birthday or something. And she opened the package and looked at me, looked immediately up at me and said, do you, do you not know me at all? And I was like, oh, huh. I spent a lot of money on that. Oh, no. Uh, anyway, so I, my dad opens this box, and there's a pair of Levi's in there. And I'm like, those are called Levi's, Dad. They're like a thing that everybody's wearing now. Get with the times. You know, they're very versatile. And my dad said, looked up in the same way as, as uh, my old girlfriend and said, <clears throat> I'm not an enlisted man. I don't dress like an enlisted man. And I was like, Whoa. An enlisted- I'm adding that one to the list. <laughs> don't dress like an enlisted man. I'm not an enlisted man. Right? He mm. said, I'm an officer. I wear khaki. I work for a living. And it was something from the United States Navy in 1940. Oh, it's a, it's a whole different signification for him. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it, it, when this is a, that's a swabby. Right? Or, you're going to yeah, be a guy, a guy with a mop on, uh, on deck. Yeah, you're an NCO. <clears throat> and if you're, you know, your casual work clothes, if you're an NCO, were dungarees. These are pants for semen. And if you and your formal outfits too are blue pants, um, blue wool pants, and the officers were always in in khaki pants, e- either casual or um, or when they're in their dress uniforms. And it was something that had been baked into him at a very very young age. Uh, and I think he, he I think that that uh, back in nineteen the nineteen thirties. That was that had already been true in the Navy for so long that it was understood, you know, like the introduction, I think, of khaki pants into the culture only came through the Navy. Wow. Turns out that's a good one. <clears throat> and the, and the, introduction, the introduction of blue jeans really, you know, they came off of the farm. But they came out of, I mean, uh, the story goes in, in this neck of the woods that, <clears throat> that um, 
Levi Strauss, basically there was a demand amongst gold miners and the people who were making monies off of gold miners uh, for something more sturdy, and that he started making them out of the canvas of tents is the way oh, the story goes. I like this. So that's that's where the original, I think, blue jeans come oh, from. Oh, of course. So uh, Levi's are from San Francisco, so everyone in San Francisco knows the whole story. Well, like probably, I think technically, might have been San Francisco. I mean, obviously that's where they're based, but I mean, yeah. gold country is where people were buying them out, out east of here. But, you know, but the thing is, the Here's the thing. Uh, I mean, I know that I'm older than a lot of our listeners, but I wasn't allowed to wear jeans uh, to school. Oh, that's right. I mean, I I, jeans to me, like jeans or dungarees, as my grandmother called them, that was <laughs> that was something you would wear to like you know plant tomatoes. That is not something you wear anywhere but at the house, or maybe right. to like a picnic. You know, like how well, in England all the boys wear shorts and like short pants, or how you know somebody's still a kid. It's like they haven't gotten is. their. Uh, there it is. Put that on the list. What's that? Short pants is how you know someone's still a kid. <laughs> I'm not an enlisted man. <laughs> I'm not an enlisted man. Uh, yeah, my mom used to talk about in the 1950s that all the fashionable girls, you would never, of course, wear this to school. But, you know, on the weekends, you would wear your brother's jeans and your brother's white dress shirt. Oh, that is cute. Isn't that a nice that look? That is so cute. But, you know, that required that your brother's jeans and brother's white dress shirt only be slightly bigger than you. It was mm. when people were much more people the same much, size as you, one of them. I learned this at Goodwill in the, in the 80s, is, mm. is the old people were small. Yeah, and they were small. Uh, they were like equa small. Mm-hmm. People didn't. People didn't really get big until at least the seventies. If you look at if you look at pictures of people in film, uh, which of course we all do. Yes, uh, the standard seems to be that the man be what three inches taller than the woman. Yeah, and maybe like uh, just slightly. I don't know. Like not not even any more broad. I think she- Bog- Bogey had to stand on an apple box. Bogey had to stand on an apple box. Okay. Are you kidding me? Put your how about uh, put your bogey on an apple box? That's uh, that's that's as who moved my cheese as mm-hmm. any. Um, but you know, like for me to uh, for me to be standing next to my leading lady, uh, where I'm three inches taller than her, she would have to be a very large woman. And if you think about Archie comics, right, Moose and Midge. Mm. That was played for laughs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Moose is big, Midge is small. Lol. Contrast. But uh, you know, but Moose was probably five nine. Mm. Oh, isn't that uh, amazing? It's, just, it's, just it's, all, it's like a Peter Jackson four, thing. Yeah, four, yeah. It's four, like a Peter four, Jackson four, thing. It's a force, force perspective. I mean, you can do everything's the same size. Everything used to be smaller. They talk about this now. I'm not trying to be anythingist, but they mm-hmm. talk today about how you got to make for Americans, you got to make seats bigger, right? It, like if you when you try to put people of our time onto a ferry for example mm-hmm. some kind of conveyance that was built in another generation they don't fit you gotta you gotta retro retrofit the ferry you okay writing that one down Put that down retrofit the ferry okay um my you know a lot of my people in the show business mm-hmm. uh this was an interesting thing i learned many years ago from a uh, from a booking agent someone that we would call a buyer which is to say someone that's booking a club not a seller, which is a booking agent that represents a band. Okay, now I'm learning some jargon. This is good. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So, a booking agent at a club is buying the artist, and the uh, and the booking agent that works for him, of course, is selling. Okay. Uh, so, a buyer once told me, because I, 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 I many years ago, probably 2003, I started to be able to estimate the capacity of a club pretty easily from the back of the room. 
you know, you, and it's a skill that you have to learn when you're in the business because you walk into a room and you're like, oh, this place can, you know, this is a capacity 320. And then the, the booking agent walks up and he's like, yeah, capacity 275. So you're, already to, doing, you're doing a little bit of arithmetic based on things like guarantees and things like that, right? Or like, no, right. like a, estimated, like what you can expect to make that night. Right. What, what constitutes a sellout here? Okay. Is the thing that everybody really cares about, you know? And if, it, if he's saying it's a sellout and he says the capacity is 275, then that's how he's going to settle with you. If you put 320 people in that room, that's something you should know. I got it. Um, are you picking me up? Are you reading me loud and clear? Oh, yeah, you're five by five. You sound great. Good, good, good. I heard somebody coughing. Is that coughing. what five by five means? Yeah, I heard somebody coughing, and I heard, or I'm guessing it's probably a LaCroix opening at one point. Yeah, But no, you of... sound great. You sound like you're in a cathedral. Good, five good, by good. five is an indication of uh, the strength and volume of your signal. Wow. God, I learned something. Isn't that good? That's, that's pretty good jargon, huh? Well, so the buyer was saying <clears throat> the capacity of this room at a of Montreal show or uh, the capacity of this room at a Boards of Canada show is about 200 more people than the capacity of this room at a Melvin show or a Mastodon show. Hmm. And I don't, I said, uh, oh, I see. Interesting. Yeah. He's, he said, at an indie rock concert, I can put so many more people in this room because the people are themselves smaller. Whoa. And at, a, at like a heavy metal show, an old school rockabilly punk rock show, the, the fans themselves are so like demonstrably larger people that it cuts the capacity of this room by a couple hundred. And he's talking about a big room. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just like, that cannot possibly be true. And he said, you know, come to two shows and tell me, I mean, tell me your experience. And of course I'd been to all those shows and you know, it's absolutely true. There are rock shows that I can go to where I have a perfect line of sight of the stage, no matter where I'm standing in the room, because the average size is five, eight of the people at the show. I and bet, then I bet are, Montreal attracts a, a pretty, uh, pretty slight, slight of build. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Whereas if I go to a Mastodon show, mm -hmm. I feel like I am in a, I am like in a forest of meat. Like I can't, I can't necessarily <laughs> see the stage because yeah. there are, there are like ants in leather jackets standing all around me. Um, and, and that's, that's astonishing. And that's the type of thing that is, you know, across other, like using that as a metaphor, uh, it's very hard nowadays to not get into tricky territory when you start talking about audiences for things or mm, Yeah, I think it's better to probably, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but it's, you know, people in the, people in the world of show business are saying, are having, you know, this, this guy is saying, I can't put the, I can't put max capacity in this room. I'm losing money um, because there just isn't room. For the people. That's a strange yeah. constraint. You okay? Oh yeah, I'm I'm great. I was just uh, opening a LaCroix and uh 
I wasn't really. Hmm. But I have a <clears throat> I have a mute button here. Oh, that's terrific. Oh, huh. I have a mute button now, and I'm I'm learning to use it uh, because I you know I've heard over the years that it's something that you should learn to use. Uh, and uh, I mean, <clears throat> I'm still going to clear my throat on the program. Well, that's the you know everything that's in the show is part of the show. Yeah, I mute I mute if I urinate, and I right. mute if I make coffee. And right. I, I mute if I uh, open a uh, new drink. I'm still on my just at the tail end of my coffee, and uh, I got the same um, same same seltzer right here. Yeah, I'm. I'm I appreciate uh, I'm your professionalism, tail. though, and this is your craft, John. You, yeah. You're somebody who's not afraid to cut up some monkeys. You you know that this is your craft, and you're always working to improve it. Well, let me explain. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm recording from uh, from California, as I say, and so my situation has changed quite a bit. I'm. Uh, I'm using a computer that's uh, that doesn't belong to me right now because although I have my mobile podcast rig that I carry with me everywhere, I invariably forget one key component of it every time. Uh. One time I forgot the cord that hooks my mic to the computer. One time I forgot my headphones. And now twice I've forgotten the power cable for the computer. Oh, and these don't work betwixt the uh, the very. I see what you're saying. No. Oh, so it's you're, the, you're in dongle hell. Right. So here I'm I'm uh, recording on a MacBook Air. Uh, normally I have a MacBook Pro. Is that what it is? And the uh, and the two power cables never the twain shall meet because they're they you know they're separated by two years or something. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> separated by six months in the mm, Apple yeah. like yeah. churn. And so, anyway, so my experience here is is different in two crucial ways. One, there is almond milk in my coffee instead of cream. I don't think that's really milk. Uh, it's not at all. Lemons. You can't milk an almond. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, there are certain kinds of vegetarians, I think, now where every single thing they eat, eat is made of almonds. Mm -hmm. In the same way that it used to be made of soybeans. You get a tofu, right? Back right. in the day. But now you can get an almond loaf baked in almond milk, covered with almond cheese, uh, you know, with a with some almond chicken wings. I mean, mm. it's insane when you go to the store. If you could just, if you could turn your uh, your Google Glass so it only allowed you to see things made of almonds. Oh, I see. Uh, our, you know, Google Glass R.I.P. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the other difference is that <clears throat> this computer is set so that it goes to sleep pretty fast. It's because the millenniums like to save energy. Yeah, yeah. It's gone to sleep now twice on me oh, during this program. And uh, then it just has a, screen, a screensaver of basically the Apple logo and then the name of the owner of the computer and the words MacBook Air mm. just sort of bouncing around a black screen. Okay, now you're fuzzing out a little bit just now. Have you, no. did, you, uh, did, you, did you do anything? Are you downloading anything? No, no. Yeah. In fact, I, I can't download anything mm -mm. because uh, the computer has gone to sleep. Oh. And I can't wake it up without a password. Oh, dear. That's, yes. See what I'm saying? Oh, gosh. We're probably on borrowed time. Uh, no, I don't think so because uh, I've done the classic thing of talking about it on the Internet program enough yeah. that uh, that my, uh, um, my friend, my lady friend, yeah. my millennial girlfriend yes heard what i was saying okay and came over in a fairly perfunctory way and in, in, inputted her password into the computer so now i'm back up back <sighs> online wow and uh 
crisis narrowly averted. And now I'm going to sit here absentmindedly running my finger over the mouse pad. The mousing so the uh, surface little, there? Uh, yeah, so the mousing surface. Mm-hmm. Um, run your finger on the mousing surface? Mm, that's kind of no. there. Retrofit the fairy. You know, I think we need to. We probably just need to sit with this for a while. We'll we'll we'll, we'll get some good ones. Are there? Um, okay. See, I also I like the ones that um, that really don't mean anything. I guess we've got a few yeah. of those, but uh, I also would like to explore more of the ones that literally don't mean anything. And that, to me, that's the ones where I could really see some traction coming along. Yeah. Yeah. See, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. I don't want to try too hard. This is what happens when you're when you're doing blue sky solutioneering. You just got to unclench. Wait, you just got to unclench. I'm going to add that. Pretty good. You've got to, yeah, you, if you're doing blue sky uh, solutioneering, you yeah. have to unfudge. Oh, sorry, what, unclench, what John. I'm sorry. Oh, unclench. <laughs> you're unclench. very near the ocean. You're probably getting some interference. Well, listen, I promise you, as your friend, that if something happens and it does drop out, I, I will hit the bell and, and we can end the show like gentlemen. Hello. Hi. Hi, Merlin. <sighs> I wonder yeah, how, I should, very, uh, how I should handle that. It's there's a lot, very a lot of gold in there. I don't want to leave any of that out. No, no, it's all good. <clears throat> in a form of sympathetic magic, many people in cargo cults built life-size replicas of airplanes out of straw uh-huh. and cut new military-style landing strips out of the jungle, hoping to attract more airplanes. Hmm, so is this like I mostly got it right? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Attract more airplanes. Coconut, coconut headphones. Trying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Coconut headphones. That's a good. That's a good indie rock band name. Coconut headphones. I um, I'm happy to say, at my advancing age, I, I have um, I think I've given my family a gift in some ways, a meta gift, which is that now I have now settled into uh, being very happy with getting mostly the same things for Christmas every year because I actually really oh. do want and need them. What it's, are those? Well, I mean, the, 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 one of the top items is uh, I get a new pair Field of 501s. If I get, no, no, but I get a new pair of 501s. Every year? Every 1225, I get, I get me yeah. a new pair of 3430, uh, uh, 3430, 3432. I get a new pair of 501s, and then mm-hmm. the cycle continues. The, um, you get a new pair of 30, 3230s, 3430s? I think it's 3430, 3432, something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I get that. I get some socks. I usually get, like, a, a sweater. Uh, yeah. Santa really uh, got me some of these long sleeve T-shirts that I like a lot, and I am that I'm yeah. I'm happy as a pig in clams when that happens. So so uh, so every year, uh, you get one pair of fifty four forties. It's probably more five hundred ones, the classics, unwashed that we've talked about. I don't really even need them because I yeah. wear them for longer than a year. But my daughter right. is nine, and she yeah. is becoming more confident aggressive uh-huh. about, about telling me what I should do differently. And one thing is go. I need to stop wearing pants with holes in them when I pick her up at school. I embarrass her. Trashed those. pants. Mm-hmm. She's done with those. So do you have, do you have a silo filled with Levi's that you consider still very wearable and usable, but that you have semi retired because, um, because your daughter no longer feels like they're acceptable streetwear? That's a great question. Basically, there's three, there's three levels. There's the current sure. Levi's, where you sure. could actually Which wear are... them to dinner, and yeah. people wouldn't go like this. Like, yeah. So there's those. And then you've got the ones that are faded. They might have some holes. you got the iPhone hole on the left side. Sure. I always get an iPhone hole. The... 
the uh, the the space pen uh, fade. space pen uh, invagination and and the thing right. is then you got the third group which are the ones I'd like to hang on a little bit longer but I'm getting the stink eye and usually those yeah. get donated to my daughter to be cut up and used as fabric for her sewing projects. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there aren't any Levi's that are that are that are trashed but that you can't surrender. Um, well, that was the case with the there's a there was a pair that fell into that third group. Uh, in the last six months. I was really sorry to say goodbye to. But yeah. as we talked about many times before, uh, everybody's Levi's blow out in, in a way that is peculiar to them. That's and, true. And like always, it's one knee before the other for me. It's one pocket hmm. before the other for me. Hmm. And it's mm-hmm. the right side of the crotch starts to blow out. And I don't want to put a yeah. patch in there because this is 1972. I'm not going to live like that. Well, you know, my, my crotch blows out pretty darn early. Yeah. Uh, just because, I mean, who knows why? Yeah. But um, I have probably in the silo, in, in group three of my Levi's, I probably, let's say, 18 pairs of group three Levi's what? that I keep in a duffel bag. <laughs> Some of them, you know, a lot of them dating back to when Levi's were still made in America. Uh. So American-made um, Levi's where they are still wearable except for a crotch blowout and a, a knee blowout mm-hmm. that are very patchable. Some of them have been patched already. Like a lot of them had the thing where the crotch blew out and they were patched and then the knee blew out. And I didn't have the I didn't have the foresight when the sewing machine was out and the patches were going on to say like, let's also patch that knee. Okay. Because it's very hard to get the sewing machine back out two weeks later to put patches on all the pants again. True. And so back in the old days, of course, I would have worn them with the knees blown out until they were just like shredded. On I, I'm not sure when. I'm not sure when that stopped being permissible. To me, a blown out knee is not a, a, a you know a, a climate ending event. Like to me, a blown out knee is a blown out. Uh, it's just a thing. Now the blown out crotch that send that that uh, that throws a signal. You don't want to do that. But I don't know. I guess maybe it's just not okay to have uh, you know holes in your knees anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think we're grown ups now. Yeah. Can't really walk around with with the knees and your pants blown out. But I but I just had a I just recently. So I've been carrying around these jeans in a duffel bag. Um. For a long time, because, you know, there are a lot of things about them. They fit me uh, like a glove, as much as Levi's can ever fit me like a glove. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they have well-worn patina that belongs to me. It's nobody else's patina. It's your patina. It didn't come from from a factory. It's Mm -mm. not something I found in a store. It's patina patina that I built with my own blood, sweat, and tears. And most of all, oh, and also, they're American-made. And you can't get those anymore unless you want to pay top dollar. But most importantly, they are still service, perfectly serviceable pants. Mm-hmm. And just recently, now that I'm spending all this time in California, uh, the, it was like it was like the sun came out on these jeans. I realized that they were all perfectly prepped to be cutoffs. <laughs> And down here in California, when it's warm a lot, I was going to say all the time, but I'm looking out at gray skies and my feet are freezing because it's freaking cold here right now. Hmm. In the, It's winter time. Uh, but there's all these cutoffs just waiting to... They're, they're cutoffs people, are, wait- people are still wearing cutoffs? 
Well, this is the thing in California. Who can tell me what to do? Yeah, that's true. Right? That's a really, especially Venice Beach. Woo. Venice Beach. I mean, I got all. I've got a, like a lifetime collection of Hawaiian shirts that are not. They're not Magnum PI Hawaiian shirts. They're the kind of Hawaiian shirts where the uh, like the bold side of the fabric is turned in, and the outside, the faded sort of like. Uh, the through side of the fabric is turned out. Yeah. I don't know what those are called exactly. I know, I, I know what you mean, though, where it looks, uh, yeah, yeah, it's faded. Yeah, I, yeah, I, the, I know what the, you mean. The rain spooners or whatever. And they're <laughs> all, uh, they're, none, of them button, none of them unbutton all the way down. They're kind of, they're anorak style or whatever. They only button like four buttons down. And they're pullovers. I don't know why. When I was a kid, I, I got one of those shirts and I really thought it was great. And uh, so uh, my whole life, I've only ever... I've only ever tolerated that kind of Hawaiian shirt. Like the rayon ones that have hula girls on them and that type of thing. I don't want anything to do with them. Mm. I don't want to touch those with a 10-foot pole. Hmm. I want ones that have a flower motif and are turned inside out and have a, you know, like anorak style. Well, I don't know if those are cool or not. That's the only kind I have. And I wear them all the time down here because pff, what? who can, you know, there are people yeah. walking down uh, Venice Beach dressed like Jimi Hendrix on a unicycle. <laughs> So I started turning these Levi's into cutoffs, and uh, I remember when cutoffs, cutoff jeans were like the coolest jeans, and so I feel very cool in them. Hmm. You know, you cut cut them off a little bit high, and not so not so high that your pockets are sticking out. <laughs> okay, all right, oh, okay, all right. But you know, like mid mid thigh. Do you, give, do you give them a cuff or do you hem them? Oh no, no, you let them you let, let them, them string out. Let them fray. You let them fray. And, uh, oh, I'm so pleased because, you know, these pants still fit good. I've already mended the crotch in most cases. And now I'm just walking around like I look like I'm ready for a hacky sack game at any moment. Mm. I'm also wearing checkerboard vans because I, you know. Wow, you've really, you've got a whole look together. I'm, I'm like so together. I, I look like, and this is the thing I can't decide. Because when I walk into a lot of the, uh, the like cool cafes here in Venice. Yeah. Um, it's like a lot of times when you walk into places in Los Angeles where actors and, and uh, script writers and things hang out. Mm -hmm. You walk in the door, and at least in my case, a lot of people look up and look at me for uh, for like three beats. Oh, they got the heads up display. Yeah. Scanning, and scanning, scanning. That's right. Like, is this somebody? Who is this? Is this somebody? That L.A. thing. Nobody in Seattle ever looks up. Nobody is that the guy Seattle. who writes for the Oscars? Yeah, right. Is, is he? Does he write for Parks and Parks and Community? Sure, sure. <laughs> you know. Um, and so I, uh, so I, and I don't mind that, right? Because I'm used to kind of feeling like when I walk into a room, everybody should look up for a second. Totally, yeah. Uh, but but increasingly it, with this outfit, the cutoffs and the Vans and the Hawaiian shirt, I'm not sure whether I look like somebody who's really had a success in Hollywood is really like he's written some killer scripts and now he gets to like Lebowski it everywhere mm -hmm. he goes. Yeah. Or whether I look like somebody who shouldn't be allowed in the cafe. Hmm. Right. Like somebody who's who, so, like a person is going to walk over and say, can I help you, sir? Yeah. But you know, you that, that kind of, can I help you, sir? Yeah. But you, you know, you carry yourself with a lot of dignity. Yeah. Like a script writer. Well, right. Like, <laughs> sure. some, like somebody who won a couple Emmy awards. Or like who's, at least been, who's at least been optioned a few times. You've been optioned. Oh, for sure. For sure. I've been optioned. I'm so terrified of that world down here. You see so many people just helplessly, uh, wanting 
so they just want so much to be cast in something to get that opportunity to get their script looked at and they're they're you know they're like churning all the time going to all this stuff like really 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 climbing or it's like the, the clock's ticking the whole time the clock is ticking you know on, and on their i mean at least on their i mean in a long-term sense on their age you know and what they'll be suitable for because the options go down as you get older but also probably there's not like an unlimited amount of money to keep that thing afloat well that and also i think and i'm not sure because i'm not i'm not embedded in the culture but there's another clock that's ticking which is how long have you been in hollywood and nothing's happened for you oh, oh maybe that's right. a sign that nothing's going to happen for you it's like applying for too many credit cards yeah right yeah, like your it. stock goes down by the number of scripts that you've written that haven't gotten made oh god um so it all so it all just feels and also i mean i had a friend that worked down here that was an actor and eventually he decided that he didn't want to be an actor he wanted to be a professional waiter because it was at least something he was good at and he got tired of of applying for a job as a waiter in a restaurant where all the other waiters were were like really really beautiful actors and he realized like waiting you know in most places waiting isn't that hard why would you hire this 40-year-old person when you could hire a 22-year-old person that that looks like Keanu Reeves right um but that's the other problem down here. There's always going to be somebody more beautiful than yeah. you. If if your beauty and is somebody the, just the obvious one, somebody who wants it more, or somebody so, who will sacrifice more, forgo more. Right, right. So what did and he end up doing? Did he go to uh, Poughkeepsie to to wait? No, he waited tables here in Hollywood for a long time because I think he got a good job in a fancy restaurant where it was important that he be a good waiter. But also, he was a very handsome, uh, like, character actor. You know what I mean? Like, he wasn't ever going to be a leading man, but he was definitely going to be, uh, he was perfect to be the henchman of the villain. Oh, like, nice. chief henchman. Mm-hmm. Who was the long, bl- long-haired blonde guy in Die Hard? Uh, the uh, the ballet guy, right? Yeah, the ballet guy. Yeah. Nuriev. Uh, uh, What's, no, what's his name? Not Barishnikov. It's uh, he's the guy who died. Uh, yeah, he's the guy who died. Uh, die hard, uh, boy. This is killing me. But you know, he was a great sidekick. Uh, Alexander like, Gudinov. Gudinov, right? He was, uh, you know, he was a good like chief bad guy, chief henchman bad guy, mm-hmm. because uh, the the because Mister Bad Guy in Die Hard, Mister yeah. Chief Bad Guy, Hans Gruber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hans Gruber. He's not a guy that's ever really going to pick up a gun. My God, he, that movie's so good. Unless he has to. Unless he's like trapped <sighs> in a in a back hallway. With uh, you know, with old what's his butt, mm-hmm. uh, then he's going to pick up a gun, but uh, but for the most time he's like holding a gun isn't going to be his thing. But oh, he was in Witness. Long. I forgot that he was in Witness. Right, of course he's very Amish looking. <sighs> he's too. Amish in Witness. I forgot about that. And the uh, you know, and the the German accent helps with the Witness too. Yeah, yeah, but so you know, I would I would not mind having a you know a bad guy for a waiter. No, right? He's yeah. he, you know he's one of those people that when he puts on one of those dumb pork pie hats that all the dinglings wear, yeah, it looks in, instantly natural. He's very Tom Waits. You got to have the head for that. Yeah, you, and you put it on, and you got. I, th- I feel like you got to have a whole. You have to look like an old fashioned person. Mm-hmm. Like your face has to look old fashioned. Uh, for me, I you know I can only get away. I think with Al Capone hats. Or at some point, like I decided that Oscar Wilde slash Al Capone were going to be those two guys were going to be my hat mentors. Yeah, because there's no way I'm not a, I'm not going to wear a Tom Waits hat. It just looks stupid on me. I think you should go for a full on Quentin Crisp. 
Oh, a Quentin Crisp hat. See? Get, get you like a big peaked purple hat with maybe like a feather on it. Like, like, like an Oscar Wilde hat. Yeah, you have to know what role you're auditioning for. Mm. Uh, anyway, my friend eventually, you know what he did? Hmm. He moved to Seattle and he described him, moved back to Seattle and described himself as a climate change refugee. Is <laughs> uh, that a which, thing? Which, well, apparently, the, the really forward-thinking people down here are starting to see the writing on the wall. They're starting to see that the water's never going to return. Oh, interesting. And, uh, they, and also, they, they trend toward conspiracy. Let's be honest. And I'm starting to, I'm starting to look, at, look at people now and say, you know, just based on looking at you walking down the street, which way do you trend on conspiracy? Okay. Like, if, if not, there's... Not, not new- weather, but which... Yeah, if there's a if there's a new conspiracy, do you adopt a uh, somewhat of a skeptical take on it, mm-hmm. uh, but still very interested to see? You know, like does this conspiracy involve the Rothschilds? Does it involve uh, a one-world government, or is it more about uh, that uh, jet fuel can't melt steel beams? Yeah, and obviously they all they all blend together at a certain point. Yeah. But, uh, but, but you know, one- you can tell a lot about somebody by their conspiracy theory because, you know, it's what, what attracts you and then but what also what, what keeps you engaged. There's something about this you couldn't unhook from. Right. Well, and I so last night I'm, I, uh, I played for my millennial girlfriend a, uh, a, some, a little bit of uh, the a couple of Building 7 uh, videos. Okay. Uh, just to see what would happen. You know, like, here's some Building 7 stuff. What do you feel? How do you feel about this? Mm-hmm. And she immediately found it very appealing. Like, turned to me a couple of times and said, well, how do you answer that? What do you say to that? Is this the one that went down when it seemed like it shouldn't have really gone down? Yeah, like, you know, six, seven hours later, this building collapsed. And from the footage, very much seems like it's collapsing exactly like a Las Vegas hotel. Right. Like, uh, uh, like it collapsed very perfectly. You couldn't have collapsed that building any better if you had the top-shelf global building collapsers. I watched, uh, I watched the 9-11 documentary last week, and, oh. uh, you know, it was, uh, it was uh, first of all, uh, very upsetting. Yeah. You, you don't really get over that day. But also, like, it is pretty bananas that those two big buildings went so directly down. Just, like, right straight down. I mean, the thing is, if I dropped something off the roof of our house, it, it would land further away than these buildings did. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Right. If you, if, you were throwing, uh, if you were throwing melons off the mm-hmm. top of a three-story building, mm-hmm. they're going to they're gonna land in, a, in kind of a splatter pattern. Yeah. You're not going to get those melons right in the same spot each time. So you, you tickled her uh, conspiracy bone a little. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, and I don't think it was a world that she'd been exposed to before. Interesting. Necessarily, where it's like... Wait a minute. There's incontrovertible evidence here. I feel like I feel like somebody who's never played Zelda or something. Where like I hear about this world and then I don't realize how deep it is until you just go and do a Google search like a person and yeah. it's like, oh my god, yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. lot in the documentaries, John. There's a lot of documentaries. I, I watched yeah. a real like a legit documentary, like you know, a straight mainstream documentary. I sure, did not but watch if you get into the... Alex Jones territory, you're gonna you're gonna see some amazing Gotta things. Go there, do, do your own research. <laughs> One of the things that happened here on the Building 7 documentary uh, was it, it, it did extend to a general 9-11 hot take. And that hot take was, in all seriousness, that both airplanes were, in fact, holograms. Ho- ho- that, holograms. That, that no, that's right. That no airplane actually hit either tower because if you look at the footage, if you study it, if you slow the footage down. I bet you got to really way, look at it. 
You have to really look at it, slow it all the way down. Okay. You realize that the way that the planes impacted the building was physically impossible. And there are 25 uh, scientists on tap here uh, that will confirm that that's not what would have happened. Something, it's not clear what would have happened. I mean, if they're scientists, obviously, I I gotta believe it. The thing is that a 757 had never crashed into a World Trade Center before. Yeah. So we can't be sure what would have happened. We got two in 20 minutes. Yeah. But we could be sure that it wouldn't have happened that way. Hmm. Uh, and 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 it was we had the we had the conversation here in the house because one of the things uh, that they said in the documentary was only three buildings in history have ever collapsed due to fire. I mean, talking about skyscrapers, mm-hmm. only three sky, skyscrapers have ever collapsed due to fire, and all three of them were at the World Trade Center site that day, that fateful day. Mm. Building one, building two, and building seven. And like, so uh, as far as like, I'm, I probably won't get this exactly right, but the buildings that were destroyed in toto were almost solely world trade center related buildings they, it, it, they it's like, were, a, like a one-to-one ratio yeah, they were completely world trade center buildings and of course there were there, was, seven there wasn't world a carl's jr or something no um, there was no Carl's Jr. There, the the little church that was there uh, got uh, got you know some buildings got damaged, but they were repaired. And uh, there was one tree that uh, survived, I think, and was replanted at the current World Trade Center site, as far as I know. But the way this was uh, the way this was stated, and 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 uh, my millennial girlfriend repeated it to me, like. Only three buildings in the history of time were destroyed by fire. How do you explain that? As though that in itself was conclusive. No skyscrapers. Well, first of all, is that a, do we know that that's a true statement? I, I believe, you know, as far as skyscrapers go, can you think of another one that was destroyed by fire? Well, this I, is part of the problem, though. It's like I'm not a skyscraper expert, but like right. if somebody presents that as a fact, I'm not even sure where to go exactly to check it. As someone, speaking as someone who, A, is a skyscraper expert. Okay. And very definitely, if a skyscraper had ever been destroyed by fire, I would absolutely would have seen it. Now, but I it have was the to, infrastructure. Oh God, why are we talking about this? I have to temper this by saying I did not know about cargo cults, which also seems like a thing that a week ago I would have said. If there's such a thing as a cargo cult, I would know about it. It just means you have room to grow. Right. right that's right. But my my only take on that was phrase that sentence just slightly differently. Only three skyscrapers in history have ever been destroyed by fire. So we don't really have a wide set of information to determine how it is supposed to happen. Right. Right? Like all three of them collapsed just perfectly straight down. Maybe that's what happens when a skyscraper is destroyed well, by mean, fire. Well, I mean, not to be a pill, but how many buildings of greater than 80 stories have had a plane fly into them? Right. How many buildings greater than 80 stories have ever been built? Destroyed. <laughs> Right? I mean, right. built, let alone destroyed. Exactly. I think the answer is zero. I don't think any building over 80 stories has ever been destroyed. You're going to get some mail, buddy. You're going to get mail. I think Ooh. they were, I think everyone that's ever been constructed is still standing. Because huh. how the fuck are you going to take one down? Maybe we should move. I'm not saying we don't have time today, but maybe we should pivot here from uh, clever catchphrases and jargon yeah. into uh, facts. We could produce some facts for people. Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. How, what kind of facts would you like to produce? Oh, I mean, it's either the kind of thing that's really obvious uh, until you think about it, and then it doesn't make sense, or, right. or the kind of thing that would be difficult to prove, or the kind of thing that seems really smart, but is actually just really obvious. 
Well, over, over, so 90, for, over 90% of the people living in Canada will die in the next 100 years. I believe it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that, that you just phrase that as as a statistic. Turns so I out. believe. Mm-hmm. But but for me, it always turns it always turns the opposite direction, which is to say, if you were going to destroy those buildings with explosives, which is the contention basically of all these conspiracy theories, they all they all no no matter how many videos you watch of the airplane slamming into the building, where you're like, that couldn't have happened. That's a hologram. Um, it it always arrives at the at the point where those buildings were destroyed and if they were destroyed by explosives, I do have a sense of what it would take to destroy the world trade center with explosives. And what it would take is dozens of people wiring the entire building with explosives going off at intervals, going off at precisely determined intervals. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about a building that had people working in it every day. Yeah. And so how do you flood this building with demolition experts and flood the building with all the cabling, the wiring, the fuses, the the bombs, and put them in the precise location that they need to be, which currently is covered with wallboard because it's a freaking office that's occupied with people typing? I have to guess this has all been covered. I'm not people. sure. Well, by the people, who they, they probably say, oh, well, you know, well, the government showed up and put it in the elevator shafts. Yeah, but that wouldn't have destroyed. Anyway, hmm. it always seems to me. You, you like, really have you actually thought about this before? Yes, I have. Before oh, you even get to the level of why would they do this, yeah. <laughs> which is which is the level that's really fun, right? Yeah, because boil, the, boil in the ocean, right? Well, because of the Jews, usually. Yeah. Right. Oh. If, you, if you really go all the way back, it's Jews all the way down. It's because of the Jews. It always is. Uh, <laughs> you you have to uncoat it. You have to unpack uh. it. But eventually it's the Jews, who are always up to mischief. You know what I mean? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but, uh, but that's why. The, the, it's just at the level of how. Like if, you've got, if you're going all the way to making a hologram of a jet crashing into a building in order to avoid actually just oh. crashing a jet into the building because uh. you have a plan. Uh, Is that a typical a, Jew trick, the, the airplane I, hologram? Listen, have you ever read the protocols of the elders of Zion? It's right there. I mean, it's not. They didn't have skyscrapers at the mm-hmm. time. And so, if you but, sh- you shoot the hologram, the 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 image the image that's being projected onto air. Yeah. When you shoot that from different angles, it still looks like a plane exploding in a building. Well, here's what requires. I mean, I, I, I know they're I know they're good at yeah. uh, they're, they're good with money. Yeah, uh, they, they, make, they make <laughs> they make they're, clothes. They're very Ooh. very good at exploiting the blacks for making rock music. That's another mm. thing they're good at. Mm. But, uh, but what was required in order to make the holographic jets mm. um, is stealth aircraft technology because the holograms were being broadcast from other planes. Okay. Well, see, when you put it that way, it doesn't seem crazy. Right? So they're cloaked <clears throat> aircraft. They're sort of Wonder Woman jets. Oh, I see. Like an invisible jet. Invisible jet mm-hmm. that, is, that is projecting holographic jets. Who are slamming into the buildings in impossible ways, which is de- which are the, the the impossibility of it is detectable mm-hmm. by hum- the human eye, in order to make it plausible that these World Trade Center buildings are being destroyed by explosives, which is something that ultimately is part of what the Jews are up to, some kind of mischief that they're up to. They love their mischief, don't they? Yeah, they do. And this is a thing that you want to put like four hundred documentaries on the internet about. 
And, you know, and, 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 uh, and having successfully created uh, holograms of jets to cover up the fact that they were blowing up these buildings, the Jews get what? Mm, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Hegemony over our thoughts. Uh, <laughs> right? Mm. What they're trying mm-hmm. to... It's all, it's all a big uh, Manchurian candidate oh. thing. It's all a big... Uh, a big distraction. Yeah, it's a big distraction. It's, a, it's gaslighting all the way down. Mm-hmm. And uh, what it what it ultimately means is that uh, they you know what they're creating in us is uh, uh, like a Truman Show level of be- that w- belief that we are living in a world that we are actually not living in. The world that oh. we're actually living in, if you take the red pill, mm. is this world where the Rothschilds are bleeding us dry. Okay, um, making people into crackers and whatnot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm not there. <laughs> Making them into crackers and throwing them down a well. Uh, but that's the thing that you need to open your eyes about. Okay, I will. Right. <clears throat> yep. And that. So the ultimate. The ultimate point of all these videos, and that's why they. That's why they faked Sandy Hook too. Uh, <laughs> did they do that too? Yeah, they did. They faked Sandy Hook, um, which is just another way of taking our guns. Uh, oh, I see. If you want to take our guns, what are you going to do? Because gonna... people were upset about Sandy Hook. Yeah, that's right. I see. So you're going to you're going to fake this thing where uh, where a disturbed teenager goes into an elementary school and kills a bunch of kindergartners. Yeah. That's how you're going to get our guns. Ultimately. I see. I see. And that that's the, the most efficient way to uh, to get the guns. Right. And the reason you want to get the guns? Uh huh. Because the Jews. The... You got to get all the way back. You, I'm not going to. You know, there's a lot of steps in between. Mm. But when you finally get all the way back there, it's George Soros mm-hmm. sitting on top of a of a pile of geld, uh, <laughs> spinning and, his dreidel, and he's, making holograms. He's trying to, you know, he, there is a there is a world of reality that he understands that we don't because we're blind. Oh God, we're blind. How by, many more? But mm. the thing is, I'm woke, right? Yes, I, I, yes, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, so I'm not living in uh, in this state of affairs. There are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. Right? There's two kinds of people in this world. Mm-hmm. Winners, Winners losers. losers. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Calling it. <laughs> oh, if you can end the show on a Lindsey Buckingham Ooh. quote.